Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Good morning, everyone. Heroes, heroes, right? Everybody likes heroes. We all, uh, at one point or another, maybe before we were disillusioned with with uh, the realities, had heroes. And um, there is a book out there called The Heroes of Heaven. Heroes of Heaven. And um, uh, out of Philippians chapter 2, you are introduced, well, obviously to the Apostle Paul, but in that passage, Paul brings out three individuals, himself, uh, Timothy, and a fellow named Epaphroditus. And in uh, describing this passage, we find uh, the kind of character these men have. So, we've entitled the sermon, Paul, Model of a Servant. Um, The series we're going to call Model Servants. And um, so, there's an illustration in the passage in Philippians, you didn't get there. You didn't get there in the reading of these three men and their pattern of Christian life. As I said, uh, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And and before we finish uh, February, we want these three men to have taught us, by example, the pattern of life in terms of godly living. What, What are some of the characteristics of godly living? So, having said that, let's um, do very quickly a bit of a background into uh, the passage of Philippians, because you have to understand what's going on in Paul's life for you to grasp the, the words of which uh, he speaks of being, uh, uh, particularly in verse 17 and 18. So let's pray and we'll, we'll get started. Father... It is always a pleasure to come before your word. And we just ask that you will guide us and challenge us and point us, Father, even further into the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a fellow by the name of F.B. Myers. He was... um, uh, He was known because he was also very good friends with Dwight L. Moody. But he was an English preacher, turn of the uh, um, 19th century into the 20th century. He died somewhere in 1929, I think it was. He was a Baptist minister. And um, he said this. He said, I have only one ambition. He said, I have only one ambition. To be... God's errand boy. I have only one ambition, to be God's errand boy. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus, he worded it this way. He that would be great among you shall be your servant. He that will be great among you shall be your servant. 
So Jesus taught the principle that greatness rises out of sacrifice. Paul followed that model and Timothy followed that model and we see that Epaphroditus followed that model. Now, this chapter, chapter 2, you, you have to, you, you can't just jump into the middle of it without understanding that Paul in chapter 2 touches a subject, humility. He touches the subject of humility, verse 3, verse 4. Do nothing, for, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he uh, uh, uses Jesus as the humble servant, and how he humbled himself to the point of death, becoming a human to the point of death, death on the cross. So, so the theme of these verses prior to what we're looking at is about the humility and the great example that Christ was to us in that. Now, as he's talking about humility, you got to take into consideration a couple of things. Number one, Paul is in a house arrest. He's in Rome. Um, he's there because he had to plea a case. Uh, he was going to be uh, greatly ill-treated in Jerusalem. He, he, he pleaded his case to Caesar, and so they took him to Rome. He's in prison waiting uh, to deal with this. And um, he's chained uh, to a Roman uh, soldier 24 hours a day, uh, every, every hour, every minute of the day, there's a guard uh, uh, chained to him uh, for uh, two watches, two watches, and then they switch, two watches, and then they switch. As a result of that, in the beginning of this book, Paul says that all of the house of Caesar has heard the gospel. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, they have. <laughs> you know, you're chained next to Paul, you know, for about um, uh, eight hours a day. Uh, you're going to hear the gospel. He, he's going to preach the gospel to you. Um, and uh, as a result of it, he, his liberties, of course, have been uh, reduced. He can't minister as he wishes to, and under these circumstances, and for his faith, is is here because of his faith, he then is, is poised to write this letter to the Philippians from Rome under these conditions. And get a hold of that because it will matter as we go through. So verses 12 and 13 talks about how we are to work out our salvation. You heard that there. It's verses that sometimes people throw at us. They're not really sure what they mean, right? But uh, uh, God puts in us uh, salvation. God puts it in us and we're to work it out in, in that way in our lives. Meaning we're to demonstrate a transformed life in our behavior. We work it out. We, we, we let it come out in our lifestyle, in our way of being. And then verse 14 he says, do it without grumbling or disputing. So he's saying live out your life without complaining, no matter what circumstance you're in, as he is in 
house arrest and writing this letter. So there's a principle that if we would have taken time, we would have arrived at, and it's, the principle is humility, a non-complaining spirit, working out your salvation in the power of God. And then you come to the pattern. And here's the pattern. The pattern is an illustration. So, so he's given them all of this sort of challenge of lifestyle, of humility, of non-complainment, of working out, living out your faith. And then he's going to give them a pattern. He's going to show them how that works out in his life intimacy, and, and Epaphroditus. So, as we look at the text, Paul, um, you, you learn that Paul ministers out of love. He always says that what he does, he does because he loves the people. He said it to the Philippians. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ constrains me, okay? It empowers me. But he also ministers out of fear, which sometimes I think is because we misunderstand the concept of fear. But he does. Paul ministers out of fear. Let me read to you verse 16 where it says, I don't want to run in vain and I don't want to labor in vain. He's concerned that he might waste his time, his effort, all right? So there was in the heart of Paul a very healthy fear. Um, basically what he's saying is, I'm afraid that I might have run in vain or labor in vain. And, and in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 37, he says this, he says, I'm afraid, he says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, and he means morally. I'm afraid that maybe I'll sort of, you know, be a bad example, do something irrational, and, and bring down everything that has been built. Um, I had to, as a child... I remember uh, my mom taking me to New York City, and um, I, one day, I remember we walked past this very large uh, uh, construction site, and of course, it was all uh, caged in, you know, you couldn't really see, but you know, little kids, they are always curious, what's behind there, and there was a little opening between the fences, and you know, in New York, people just walk, you know, shh. but I was, you know, and I let go of my mom, because I wanted to look in there, what is behind that, and shock of shocks, it was the deepest hole for crying in a bucket of empty water I had ever seen. It went, it, for a little kid, I thought, where does that hole go? It was so deep. Well, they were setting the basis for the Twin Towers. And um, in time, I, little by little, every time we come by, and finally I realized there was a building going there, you know, and uh, eventually uh, the Twin Towers. How long did it take for those things to come down? You see, you build a life. You have a testimony. And Paul, what he's saying is, I can bring it down in one bad choice. One simple bad choice can bring it all down. And so he, he ministers, yes, out of love, but he also ministers out of a healthy fear. 
that he might make a mistake. Again, going back to uh, F.B. Myers, this uh, 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 London Baptist preacher, he says this, that which costs us nothing will not benefit others. That which costs us nothing will not benefit others. So, so even though there's fear, he never held back. He, would, he lived with a passion. He labored with passion. He had zeal. He had energy about pro- proclaiming Christ. But always in the back of his head, he says, afraid that I might dishonor my Savior, that I might do something that would put me morally on the sidelines. So the people that make the difference in the world are the people who with passion and with zeal serve God in in moments of difficulty. I, I can think of Moses who was prepared to be blotted out of the book of life because he wanted to defend the Israelites. But it was because he was willing to give even his life and his knowledge of God that he was able to bring them for 40 years, put up with them and bring them right to the edge of the promised land. It was because Jesus wept over Jerusalem that he was able to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It is love and passion both together to work out our salvation. And Paul says that he was prepared to be accursed. I don't know if you know that. Paul says, I was prepared to be accursed. He says that in um, Romans chapter 9. I will give up my knowledge of God for my fellow Israelis. He says, I want the Hebrews to know that Jesus is Messiah so bad. I'm willing to go to hell for them. And you wonder why in his life he brought so many to Christ, right? Because as uh, uh, F.B. Meyer says, that which cost us nothing will not benefit others. So for things to truly matter, there must be a sacrifice for it. Nothing good comes cheap, right? Nothing good comes cheap. So that brings us to our first point, and uh, let's go through this quickly. My first point is Paul, the sacrificial rejoicer. The sacrificial rejoicer. By the time we're done, you're going to know what I mean by that. That he was a man who in his most deepest sacrifice would still rejoice. So verse 17 and 18, let's read that together because those are going to be the verses that are going to set the pace for the rest of the time here. Uh, Verse 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Those two verses. We're going to exegete them as best as we can. Isn't it a bit much? If you stop and see what he's saying, isn't it a bit much to use yourself as an illustration? I'm pouring out myself as a drink offering for you. You think, is that an act of pride? I had my issues with the Apostle Paul when I first got saved. 
I couldn't understand that kind of writing. If there was ever a verse that haunted me was 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he said, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. And I used to say, why does everybody think this guy is so great? He sounds quite arrogant and proud. I couldn't understand because I hadn't begun to understand what it meant to walk with Christ. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. The Holy Spirit didn't hesitate. Do you realize that? The Holy Spirit didn't hesitate to use Paul himself to use him as an illustration of something he was trying to teach them. You see, when we speak about inspiration, we have to always remember that the writers didn't just write what they wanted. They were under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They were, it says that the Spirit of God breathed into them the words that they were to write. Not the thoughts, the words. Not just the words, but the jots and the tittle, Jesus said. And so, He's writing what the Spirit of God wanted him to write, and the Spirit didn't hesitate to use Paul as an example. When a person is truly spiritual, truly godly, truly deep, and, and truly walking in intimacy with God, there is a lack. Listen, brothers, listen. There is a lack of self-consciousness. What do I mean by that? That self-consciousness is in the hypocrite. See, the hypocrite knows I fall short. And so he's not, he's not quick to use himself as an example. Because he, he, he says, I, I haven't arrived. Yet, God in his incredible knowledge of who this man was and was going to yet become more, used him as an example. It is difficult for us to say about ourselves things like that. To establish ourselves as the standard for others to follow. That self-consciousness is born out of a sense of inadequacy. Because we're not before God what we ought to be. But brothers, it's never meant to stay that way. Sure, we all start there. But we are to grow and mature in the faith to the point that we should have the confidence to say to someone that says, I just don't understand this Christian life. And look at him and say, that's okay. Just watch me. That's what Paul said. Just watch me. We should be able to do that. It's called discipleship. It should be a part of our life. So verse 17 and 18, Paul says that I am gladly offering my life. I am gladly sacrificing my life. And I find great joy in doing that. Wow. Well, that brings us into this idea here in this passage. Verse 17 again, if we could have verse 17, the drink offering. The drink offering. Uh, verse 17. And if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. What, what, what is that? What is a drink offering? Well, 
Jews and pagans, in their world of communicating to the deities, would use these drink offerings. What are they? Well, this is what typically would happen. After an animal on an altar had been killed and was being burnt up, there was a final closing to the act of offering. Okay? It was a final sort of topping of that sacrifice. So if you can imagine, visualize, there's the altar and there's this animal that has been, um, what do you call degollado? You know, slit his throat, so the blood's poured out. He's put on the offering, whether it's the whole animal, pieces of the animal, depending on the offering. It would be lit on fire, and as the, as the sacrifice is being consumed, one last step would be to take uh, a jar, something with, there would be liquid, sometimes water, sometimes, it's, uh, they say honey, they would use honey, but most always they would use wine. And they would pour wine over the sacrifice. And of course it was hot, so the minute that the liquid would hit it, it would vaporize. And that was, that was to sort of give the idea that the sacrifice was being brought to uh, the nostrils of the deity. You know, one final m- exhibition of God receive you know, this, this sacrifice, be it the Jews or be it the pagans. And what Paul says is, I am now offering my life as this final topping of drink offering upon another sacrifice. You you didn't just start the fire as a sacrifice and and put the wine on it. There had to be a sacrifice already there. There had to be an animal already being sacrificed. So in 2 Kings chapter 16, uh, verse 13, if you want to know, the, the Jewish drink is offered, and you'll see an example there. In Jeremiah 7, 18, he talks about the pagans doing it. And in Hosea 9, 4, we're told uh, that uh, that offering was wine. You know, so just so that you see, it's, it's in scripture, and we just picked those three to remind you. It was the final touch to an ongoing sacrifice. So it's a, it's a beautiful imagery. It's the final touch to something that's already taking place, as if say, you know, I, I'm adding myself to the sacrifice. I'm adding myself. I, I see the sacrifice. I'm adding myself to it. So in verse 17, it says, even if I am to be poured, even if I am to be poured, and um, the even if, uh, it's a first-class conditional That means that it's actually in the present. It indicates something that is so. It's actually taking place. So better translation would be since. Since I am to be offered or I am being because it's in the present so it's being. Since I am being offered... He is talking about something that is going on right now as he is writing. So he says, since I am presently being poured out as a drink offering, 
may it be on that sacrifice. We'll get to that in a second. Paul saw his life as a sacrifice. His whole life was a drink offering being poured out upon another sacrifice. It is happening right now because, like I said, it's a first-class conditional. And I'm being poured out presently. Here he is. Because of the cause of Christ, because of his love for his Savior, because of the cause of Christ, a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier, um, uh, he's bound, he cannot carry on his ministry as he would like, and he sees himself as being poured out in life as an offering that is pleasing to God. Now this kind of sacrifice is a willing one, And Paul was making it as a willing servant, from a willing heart. He's not proud. Actually, he's showing us humility, great humility. But remember, the, the, the drink offering is upon a sacrificial offering. So the question... The greater sacrifice. What, what is the greater sacrifice? And stay in the context. Remember that. Never go off the context. Stay in the context. What well, would be the, the greater sacrifice? Verse 17, he says, Since I am being poured out or to be poured out as a drink offering, listen to what it says, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Who's he talking to? The Philippians. So who, who are the ones making the sacrifice, he says? You, the Philippians. He sees them as the greater sacrifice. You say, how's that? Well, see, because if we would have been doing a study on Philippians, we'd have come already uh, to the fact that they were under persecution, It wasn't just Paul under persecution. They were under persecution. You need to notice that the drink offering is Paul's sacrifice, but the greater sacrifice, he indicates, is that of the Philippian church. He says, I'm being poured out, but I'm being poured out upon your sacrifice. And what is that? Well, the Philippians were suffering greatly. You see, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. There was opposition. Uh, In verse 29 of that same chapter 1, it says, uh, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Well, they're suffering. And he's saying to them, it's okay. It's, it's a good thing. The apostles, when, when they were scourged in the book of Acts, remember, and they left uh, the, the, the scourging, they said they counted it a privilege that they were scourged for Jesus because they were thinking, he was scourged, so was I. Wow, that makes me like like, like I've been given what he was given. So, so, so Paul is saying to them in verse 30, the next one, he says, engage you, you, the readers. He says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw and I had, that I had and now hear that I still have. He says, 
You're living what I've been living. And I see that. I can see the sacrifice. I was talking to a pastor yesterday. We, got, we went out for an English breakfast. Look at there. We went out. Neither one of us were English, but we went out for an English breakfast. And we were talking, and, you know, we, we, we were just talking about how it just seems as though every generation keeps saying, can it get any worse? Can it get any worse? Can it get any worse? And the answer is, yeah. I hope you understand. It's going to get worse. Now they're trying to tell us how we're supposed to think. Uh, today they're trying to uh, shape our moral compasses, uh, change the nature of life, change the DNA of people by simply saying, I am now this and I am no longer that. He said, but you realize sooner or later this is going to come to the point of we will be taken. We will be in prison for not thinking like they think. Right now, they just, they want to execute it through laws that we have to think like they think. But, sooner or later, that is going to cause us serious issues with law. We will be in prison. So we'll either have to change our moral uh, basis or we will pay for it. And so... Can it get any worse? Well, have you read Revelation lately? Yes, it's going to get worse. And uh, he is just simply saying to them, You've, you saw how I was once treated. Now you're being treated that way. And by the way, I'm still being treated that way. Yet he sees himself as a drink offering. So in an ungodly environment, a pagan culture... Bringing on persecution, as seen in these verses, is just the consequence. So, part of this conversation came because of a little clip of a message from a minister that was passed on to me, in which the minister said this, and I, I, I went back, re-listened to it, he then describes it a little, and I just sat and thought about it. Here's the thought. The church has always been in contradiction to the culture. The church has always been in contradiction to the culture. And you think, well, of course it has. Because the culture is tinted by sin, and we are to not be, and so the culture always seems to work against the church. And here's the thought that this minister was, was, was trying to bring across. Why on earth are we so concerned with being equal to the culture? It's like, we have this obsession that we have to be culturally relevant. Do you realize what culturally relevant means today? So I had a conversation with a fella that uh, is in dire straits. Um, his health, living situation. And... Um, he was born a boy, but he identifies as a girl. And in the conversation, I was really blunt with him 
because he's wanting help. And really, the problem is, is where he is right now is the consequences of his 20-some-odd years of lifestyle that have affected even his health to the point that he hangs on the balance. And I said to him, because he's really confused, because now he's questioning everything. You understand? Now he's questioning everything. And um, in our conversation, I said, I said, so who has come to your aid? He says, well, it wasn't my people. He says, they literally wanted me to die so they could take my house. He says, and what didn't know was someone was recording them when they were, when they were plotting it. And I said, um, well, the conversation went on, and I said, do you realize... Because he said to me, I'm tired of not being accepted. And I said, well, I thought today you should feel accepted. Isn't that what the politicians are pushing us and, and jamming down our throats? And he says, well, yeah, we hear a lot of that, but day to day, walk and walk, in the stores, in and out, no. And I said, well, what does that tell you? I said, well, there's no rights. I said, maybe you're pushing for something that isn't natural. And maybe even though they're shoving it down our throats and they're forcing us to say it's natural, really people don't think it's natural, even though they, 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 they just don't have, you know, they just don't know what to do, and so they don't consider it natural. And you know what he said to me? He said, it isn't. I said, so then why four of you are trying to change the thought of everyone? And he said, not anymore. He says, this is not, this, this, this is not feasible living. And I said, and it took you 20 some odd years to figure that out. But that's all he knows. How do you help them? It's a challenge. And then on top of that, the noise they hear from upstairs from all the politicians is that it's natural. And so they have this mixed message. Society on the ground level says, no, it's not. But the politicians are telling everyone that it is. Do you understand the complication that goes on in these kids' heads? And he opened. And, and it's not like he's only been doing this for a week. It's, he came to this country because he was running from his country because of his inclinations and felt that here he could live out his life. And he's been here for over 23 years. Church has always been in contradiction to the culture. And you know what? It's time we stop telling the ones that keep telling us to get relevant, get relevant with the culture, and say, we're never going to be relevant with the culture. Because culture is always in opposition to God's principles and God's directions. And so he says, Paul says, you... You are 
the greater sacrifice. He says to the Philippians, you are the greater sacrifice. You are the one suffering for your proclamation of Christ. You, the Philippians, there in Philippine, mine is just a pouring out of the drink offering on top of your great sacrifice as you deal with your culture. Do you know what that culture was? It was a pagan culture where Epaphroditus was so much in the, in the forefront of that culture. You say, how much? What's the third guy's name? Aphroditus was so important that his name is Epaphroditus. Do you realize this fella, the third guy we'll look at during the month, he came from a very pagan culture and even had the name of their God to that extent and more. And so he says, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, the sacrifice they were making was really the giving of their lives to the cause of Christ. The preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the proclaiming of the word, the living for Christ outwardly in their society. Paul calls it the service of your faith. They were just living out Christianity for the sake of winning some. So, what Paul is really saying is, you, I, together, are offering to God the sacrifice of our lives. And so he says in our fourth point, I rejoice. That's our last point, I rejoice. That always, this is the book of rejoicing, isn't it? They say that rejoicing joy is the theme of this book. And in this case, this is why he rejoices. Watch, pay attention to the passage. Paul reached a common altar with the people he loved, and they had reached the common altar with the apostle they loved. And this is why we say that Paul here illustrates sacrifice. What's a godly life like? Sacrificial life. If we're going to take Paul as a model of humility, we must then take the fact that it is a sacrificial life. I am glad, Paul says in verse 17, if we can get it up there, I am glad and rejoice. Or uh, I am joyful and rejoice. Because it's the same word. Paul reached this common place. He says, I am glad and I rejoice. And the rejoice is connected to the since I am being poured out. See, the rejoice is as a result of I am being poured out. Therefore, I rejoice. So one uh, leads to the other. I am rejoicing because I am being poured out as an offering. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. And that's for what he lived. Wow. That's that's why he said in Corinthians, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die to the Lord, either way, I'm the Lord's. That's why he said also, I count not my life dear to myself. 
I just want to finish what the Lord gave me to do. So his great joy came at the point of his great sacrifice because that was his great goal. Did you hear that? The greater joy came at the point of his great sacrifice because that was the great goal. The goal was to suffer. Now we never, I mean we mentioned it in times, we've never really have gone and, and, and sort of worked it out in scripture. But, but what we sense in Paul's writing is that the greater the sacrifice on earth, the greater the reward in heaven. Wow. That gets, that kind of, you know, I keep saying to people, they think I'm a missionary. I'm a wannabe missionary, man. I have never suffered, really, compared to some of my fellow missionaries in other places. I keep saying to myself, you know, I just need to go to one of those countries and get put in jail. So at least I can call myself a missionary. You know, just because just I left my home, really? I mean, you, you read the stories of men, women who have gone across the seas, across the cultures, and suffered. My wife and I, <coughs> some years ago, <coughs> we were at my mother-in-law's house, and her church at the time was just literally across the street. And we had gone to some meetings, and there were some missionaries there. My mother-in-law said, oh, you need to come and, and meet this missionary that's there. And, and she, was there, uh, um, she was there alone. Her husband was in another church, and she was giving a presentation. Now, um, I, I'm a missionary. I got my own presentation. I know what presentations are like. So, you know, I'm listening to the presentation, perhaps a little more from a critical point of view, you know, what's here, you know, what's this all about, you know, that's, that's the way it is, you know. Anyway, so I'm watching this presentation, and about halfway through it, I realized she's telling us this, that, what they do, what this, and that, and, but they're not talking about believers, how they were reaching the, the, this, this particular group in, in Africa, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And near the end, she talks about one guy, one guy who came to Christ and, and they're discipling him and so on and so on. And thank you very much. And then she finished and said a few things. And I'm sitting there thinking, did I understand that right? So I kept quiet. I waited until everything was done and we, I don't know if my wife was, we went up to her, I went up to her and I said, up. Uh, you know, thank you. I said, how long have you guys been serving in, uh, I think it was Malawi. And she said, was it Malawi? Yeah, it was Malawi, right? She said, oh, we've been there 21 years at that point. It was like 21, 22 years. And I began to feel this chill. I said, you've been there 21 years? Did I understand your presentation right? I said, you've been working there and you have one convert? She thought I was going to criticize her. She didn't know who I was. And she, she said, well, yeah. And I was like, oh, my word. I'm standing before a real missionary. This is one of the real ones. This is one of the real ones. Like, I want to reach out and touch her, you know? You get some of that. 
And, and uh, I, I said to my wife and, and my mother-in-law, I said, can we invite her to the house for a meal? I, I want to hear her story. 20-something years laboring among Muslims, doing everything they can to bring the word. And they were so excited in that presentation because they finally, one, had come to Jesus. Folks, how long would you work and see no results to your work before you quit? Well, I'll tell you how long mine was, two and a half years. I was ready to quit Murcia two and a half years into it because that's how long it took for the first person to come to Christ in Murcia. And if it wasn't for my wife, I'd have quit earlier. But I think I figured out my, my limit was about two and a half years and, and God must have known because he brought Lola to Christ and that changed everything. That's suffering that I don't understand. That is a commitment to something that I, I understand the commitment, but man, put me in that circumstance, 20-something years, 21, 22 years, would I have stayed there that long? And I said, was it rough? And she said, they're Muslims, what do you think? So that is why Paul, to the Philippian church, says to them, in the midst of what they're going through, what he's going through, he says, don't worry about me, folks. I've never been so happy. What's, going what, what's this guy made of? Verse 18. Got to finish that up. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Why should you rejoice? Why is he telling them to rejoice with him? Because you're going through the persecution. You're going through the opposition. You rejoice too. And I'll rejoice and we'll rejoice together that you have put your lives on the altar. That I have poured out my life as a drink offering on the altar. And that is all that it is all well-pleasing to God. And in this is our great joy. In what? That Christ is being proclaimed. The great sacrifice was that they themselves were going through persecution. And he doesn't even see his persecution as the big thing. He's saying, I'm, I'm in house arrest. But at the end of the day, no one's bothering me. They're the ones that are really having a hard time out there. He says, yours is the greater sacrifice. I'm, I'm just a drink offering on top of the real sacrifice. I think, wow. The sacrificial rejoicer, Paul. The sacrificial rejoicer, amazing. What he shows is that the greater sacrifice were his brothers in the faith suffering for the cause. 
you've ever read a book uh, called Fox's Book of Martyrs, you would know what I'm talking about. If not, find it. I'm sure it's online free because it's as old as the hills. And uh, in this book, uh, it's just that, a list of martyrs from all of uh, time past, or at least what uh, Mr. Fox was able to put together. And in that book, one of the things you notice as you read it is that all of the people that go through all of this martyrdom and sacrificial moments, they come to the end with joy. They all come to the end with joy. Going back to F.B. Myers, he says this. It was thus that the martyrs pressed to the scaffold, pressed to the stake, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. Well, let's wrap this up. We've got to make this practical and applicable. So let's be honest. For most of us, you see, the only thing that brings joy is what we do for ourselves. Once in a while, the joy of seeing something done for someone else, maybe. But how many of us are ecstatic with joy in the sacrifices that are, have had to be made for Christ? Question. What are you sacrificing in service of Christ? What amount of treasure, what amount of time, what amount of effort, what are you sacrificing for the cause of Christ? Or put another way, what have you said no to in order to say yes to the will of God? What have you said no to in order to say yes to the kingdom of God? What have you said no to in order to say yes to the church of God? That's a good question. Paul lived the life of sacrificial joy. That's the example. So how am I? How are you going to experience this level of living? Because folks, it's, he's just like in another orbit, is he not? We agree with me that he's just like out of this world kind of guy. So how, how do I make it work? Well, where did Paul learn this? Who on earth would have taught Paul to live this sacrificially? Did that, did that just sort of happen in his life? Was he just, you know, another, um, what, what do they call uh, um, fanatic? Was he just another fanatic? Well, he learned it from Christ. You knew that, right? So let's have Hebrews 12, 2 up on the... So it says, look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
he despised us. He didn't care. He didn't care what was going to be said. Jesus is the perfect illustration of, hum, uh, of uh, ultimate sacrifice and ultimate joy. Jesus, in giving his life, enduring the cross, did so for the ultimate joy of offering to God the ultimate sacrifice that was well-pleasing to him. And Paul learned this from Christ. So how can Paul live like this? How can he be a prisoner chained to a, a Roman? How can he go through everything he goes through and have a spirit that says, I offer my life willingly and I rejoice in this. Well, I'll tell you how. He was so close to Christ that he knew the very attitude of Christ in his own joyful self-sacrifice. He said that in verse 4. Have this attitude in you that is in Christ Jesus because it was in him. You say, how do I reach that level? Well, Folks, here's the secret. You have. Beloved, you have. May I assure you that dwelling in you is the same Christ that was in Paul. He didn't have anything more, and we have nothing less. The only question is whether or not you have appropriated his presence, and whether you have continued to cultivate that union which will yield for you the fullness of sacrificial joy. Please may I remind you once again, chapter 1, verse 29 of this same book, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake the greater joy. We, as drink offerings on the altar of the greatest sacrifice. Let's stand as we pray, please. Father, it is nothing new to look into your word and once again see the exemplary life of this man. And this is just a little window of much of what was revealed to us in Scripture regarding him and others. But as we looked at these two verses, Father, we walk away with the understanding that we are not to run away from the sacrifice, but run to it that we are not to ignore it, but to become drink offerings ourselves. Because the greater joy is to serve you. Everything else is a waste. I'm reminded, Lord, of that little saying, poem, I don't even know where it came from. Only one life and it will soon be passed. And only what is done for Christ will last. Thank you, Father, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.